What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. I never waited for anyone who was late more than 10 minutes in my life. I'd say 15. 15's right. No, 10. And how long are people going to have to wait to see The Irishman after listening to our review? I think it's going to be more than 10 minutes, Josh. Al Pacino, not going to be happy. That is Pacino with Stephen Graham in the highly anticipated new film from Martin Scorsese, which also stars Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci. The Irishman is currently playing in an odd assortment of select cities before its Netflix debut at the end of the month. Along with that review, we wrap up our contemporary Chinese cinema marathon with this year's Ash is Purest White from director Jia Zhanka. That and more. I always give you 15 minutes, Adam. Ahead on Film Spotting. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Welcome to Film Spotting. So Martin Scorsese reuniting with De Niro and Pesci for a mob movie plus Al Pacino would certainly be cause for excitement under any circumstances. But with Netflix distributing The Irishman, the movie is only playing in certain markets and on limited screens before showing up on the service on November 27th. And it does make me wonder whether or not this scarcity of theatrical distribution has actually created more excitement for the film than if it had just gotten a normal release. What was it we were seeing on Twitter over the weekend about Arclight tickets going for $98 or something like that? Oh, there I did is, not see Yeah, that. on StubHub, oh people goodness. were putting their tickets on the secondary market and apparently making a good buck off it, Josh. Okay, well, um, yeah, it certainly seems to be generating a lot of excitement at the moment. You're saying this is a long game that Netflix is playing maybe. here. Okay. Maybe, it's or possible. of course, maybe that was all fake. It's the internet. Who knows? We saw The Irishman on the big screen as the gods of cinema intended. Plus, we will discuss Ash is Purest White. It's one of the best-reviewed films of the year, and it's the final film in our contemporary Chinese cinema marathon. It comes to us from director Jia Zhanka. First, though, Adam and I rank our top five MCU movies. Just kidding. Calm down, everybody. Let's talk The Irishman. Hello? Hey, my friend. I got that kid I was talking to you about here. I'm gonna put him on the phone and let you talk to him, okay? Hello? Is that Frank? Yes. Hiya, Frank. This is Jimmy Hoffa. Glad to meet you. Glad to meet you, too, even if it's over the phone. Our friend speaks very highly of you. Thank you. Only three people in the world have one of these. And only one of them is Irish. I heard you paint houses. No, please, no, no, please. Yes, I do, sir. Martin Scorsese's The Irishman is a whole lot of movie, Adam. Big names, De Niro, Pacino, Pesci. Epic Reach takes place across a couple of decades, three and a half hours long. 
But I'm also going to suggest it's not so much a movie as it is an Irish wake, a ruminative, somber, heart-wrenching occasion for mourning and remembering, though not remembrance of a person, but a very particular genre, Scorsese's own type of guilt-soaked, blood-spattered Catholic gangster films. The Irishman looks back on Mean Streets, Goodfellas, Casino, Gangs of New York, and The Departed from the perspective of an elder statesman, a wise counsel, and it casts those films in a retrospective light. I want to hear what you saw in that light, Adam, but first, some more context. Robert De Niro, fittingly, is the Irishman's anchor and title character, Frank Sheeran. A union truck driver as a young family man, Frank isn't above shorting deliveries in order to make a few extra bucks. This and his capacity for casual violence attracts the attention and admiration of local crime boss Russell Buffalino, played by Pesci. Buffalino, in turn and over some time, recommends Frank for heavy tasks to union boss Jimmy Hoffa, played by Pacino. And so The Irishman, adapted by Stephen Zalian from a nonfiction book by Charles Brandt, shifts among three basic timelines. Frank's final days alone in a nursing home, recounting his life to an unseen listener, his early work for Buffalino, which involved many kills, and a road trip that he takes with Buffalino in late middle age to help close the rift that had eventually opened between Hoffa and the mob. Let me return to that more general question before we dig into the details of The Irishman, Adam, and there are so many good details. If The Irishman is essentially awake, held in memory of Scorsese's previous work on these themes, these sorts of stories, what did it stir up in you about those movies? We leave wakes or funerals with something of a sense of a person's full life. What's your sense of Scorsese's mob films now as a whole in light of the monumental, The Irishman. Mm, monumental. Good word for it. And I do want to acknowledge, Josh, before I really get into answering your question, that one of the real, I would say, bonus pleasures of The Irishman is seeing all the ways that it does fit within the Scorsese cinematic universe. Beyond the obvious mob milieu, which you touched on, the use of voiceover that feels familiar, the casting of De Niro and Pesci that obviously feels familiar, I see people like actresses like Welker White on screen, who has been in other movies, of course, and has been in other Scorsese movies even, but I always think of her as the babysitter facilitating some of the drug deliveries for Henry Hill in Goodfellas. So seeing her familiar face pop up is somehow comforting. And even De Niro as the older Frank here talking to the camera and reflecting on his life, it feels like he could almost be in dialogue with Robert De Niro as Jake LaMotta near the end of Raging Bull. And, of course, we may get into it a little bit here. The famous Copa scene from The Goodfellas, well, we get a great Copa scene here, and it's almost like Scorsese is directly winking at us when he says, I'm going to show you the outside of the Copa, and then I'm going to cut to the inside of the Copa, and we're going to get some action there. But I'm not going to give you that entrance. I've already given mm -hmm. you the best Copa entrance of all time. And there are probably three or four other moments that I'm guessing weren't necessarily even intentional homages on Scorsese's part that did occur to me watching the film. And maybe if I hadn't left my notepad in the Uber on my way to the screening, I'd be able to acknowledge those. This is what happens now. when we don't sit next to each other. Exactly. You're out of luck. No paper, no pen. I was helpless. But... You think about the fact that so many of the real mob guys in Scorsese's movies or the guys who are based on real mob guys, they probably did cross paths with each other in real life, even if they never 
cross paths in their respective films. So that they intermingle here in our collective consciousness, I think, seems very appropriate. But this talking point, this critique about Scorsese in the past, it's always been that he revels in the excesses of his characters, that he glorifies or romanticizes especially the criminal life, whether it's the mob in Goodfellas or these white-collar abuses we see in The Wolf of Wall Street. And let's just take that for now at face value. I find it, at best, reductive, at worst, careless, but I absolutely get it. What then is so startling and staggering about The Irishman is how relatively prosaic it is and how undeniably elegiac it is. I think you are absolutely right to describe the movie as awake, particularly the final 45 minutes to an hour of this film. And I want to say right now that I'm hesitant to talk too specifically about the choices Scorsese makes that make this conclusion the elegy that it is, because I'm grateful that I knew almost nothing about this movie, not only its content, but its tone going into the film. And I want to retain as much mystery as we can while also talking in detail about it. But I think we can talk about some of the choices that lay the foundation for the reckoning that comes. And I'll start with this one. Several times throughout the movie, we get non-diegetic inserts where the camera will introduce us to a character who doesn't even necessarily play a major role in the film freeze on his face, mm-hmm. and then text will appear telling us who they are. But more significantly, it also tells us when and how they die. And these are all mob guys or certainly mob-adjacent guys. So it's usually something like shot in the head six times in a parking lot in 1981. And there's an ironic comedic element that's good for a quick laugh to a lot of these. But I think it has a profound— The first time, maybe. Yeah, the first time, first exactly. second time. And as you get more of these, yes. the weight grows. I think it does. It has a profound cumulative effect. And I'm not 100% sure which character is the first. Again, no notepad. But I think it's Harvey Keitel's Angelo Bruno. That's the one I remember where we first see it. It's pretty early in the film. And I could be wrong, but at least initially, when we're introduced to him, we only see him sitting in a restaurant booth looking pristine. He is just perfect in his expensive suit and the glasses. He's smooth, but as serious as you can possibly be. He's clearly the most powerful man in the place because he's one of the most powerful men in Philly. We come to learn he's the head of this mafia family character, Buffalino, for sure. Scorsese establishes his stature. And then like the Grim Reaper with that insert, he uses his scythe and he forces us to consider how fleeting and futile that stature is. All this angling for money and power, the success or lack of success you have in attaining it, it all leads to the same usually unceremonious ending. And the lucky ones, if you can use that word, well, they get a different type of unceremonious, but perhaps even more undignified ending. Either way, They're all going to the same place, which, let's face it, has always been Scorsese's primary preoccupation anyway. And this is where we could certainly dive deeper into how The Irishman connects to his other mob movies. There is a lot more to say about that. But, Josh, I really want to hear how you reacted to this film. It sounds like you had a similarly positive experience. Oh, yeah. This is really something. And I think as The Irishman sat there like Frank Sheeran in his wheelchair in the nursing home and just 
chewed over his own past. The movie does it more demonstrably than Sheeran does. We can get into De Niro's somewhat reticent but very good performance. Mm -hmm. But as this movie sat there and thought about the past, I don't think it's in an indulgent way. Um, You've mentioned a number of homages, but none of those are cheap or just for the sake of referencing earlier work. I'm glad you mentioned Raging Bull because I focused on the mob movies, as I think we should, but definitely there are connections to most of his work. Mm -hmm. You can find this movie. But again, it is not in indulgent. What it did for me is I really felt like I was sitting there watching someone take a different look at some of the stories and characters and work that had been explored before. And it emphasized to me that these mob films have always been tragedies. And I think, you know, that's not a huge revelation. It's easy to see that having revisited all of them in the last month and a half. It's easy to see that while you're watching them, but it's equally easy to forget that when what persists in our memories as the time goes by and we think back on something like Goodfellas or Casino, we remember the rock and roll. Yeah. We remember the mesmerizingly volatile characters. We remember the sexy tracking shots. We've already talked about one. And we remember the bursts of violence. Um, But what we don't remember is that all of those movies, and here's where I largely agree with you on looking back on the glorification question, all of those movies danced on that line Mm -hmm. between, uh, between guilt and glory, between the rock, between the roll, between crime and punishment. Um, I think maybe the dancing is is not as deft in something like The Wolf of Wall Street for me. That's why we differ on it. But I completely agree with you that Scorsese's career has been dancing on that line. And here we get The Irishman, which just seems to lay down on that line and just offer a gesture of supplication. And, and there's violence here, mm-hmm. absolutely. But the only real excitement in this film for me, and we will – I will dance around things as well, but just to say for those who have seen it maybe already, but the only real excitement for me is near the end, a door being kept ajar. And despite all that had come before, Mm -hmm. the possibility that lays in that shot. And that is a very different but equally enthralling sort of excitement than any of those other movies have given me before. Yeah, I agree. And I want to touch on another standout sequence for me that I think gets at the heart of everything we're talking about. And without getting into those details, I'll say it's Frank, De Niro's character, killing a rival in a restaurant. There is a fair amount of effort and care that goes into how Scorsese sets up the sequence. Not only do we see the rival and his family arriving at the restaurant and going in, we see Frank picking out which gun he's going to use. And his voiceover explains the whole process, why he makes those choices. We see his drive to the restaurant. We hear some details about what the driver knows or doesn't know. We know what Frank plans to do, and we know why he plans to do it. But when we finally see the act itself unfold... There's no dramatic music, rock and roll or otherwise, that's really – there's music, I'm sure, in that scene, but there's not dramatic music that's in sync with the action. There isn't slow motion that I recall. There's no bravura camera shots like you'd expect with Sorsese. I do absolutely need to see it again, but my sense of it, Josh, I wonder if you remember the scene I'm talking about. My sense of it was I was startled by how abrupt it was. Yes, abrupt is a good word. It's Frank walking in. It's him turning. It's him firing several times, walking out swiftly, and getting in the car. The sequence is over. And in that moment, you're, you're kind of just shook in its wake. And for a second, you think about the possibilities Scorsese might 
have had with that scene had he made other choices, but mm-hmm. they wouldn't have been other choices that were appropriate for this film and this character. You've got one of the most talented cinematic conductors ever who doesn't make this murder operatic. He makes it mostly perfunctory. Yeah. It's a matter of fact. Yeah. He makes it a job. And that takes us back to this kind of charge of indulging or romanticizing the criminal life. I could also talk favorably here about The Wolf of Wall Street, but I'm going to go with the obvious corollary, Goodfellas. That Copa sequence I mentioned. Not a crime scene, obviously, but it is a criminal enjoying the fruits of his lawlessness. Definitely indulgence there in the scene on the part of the character. Ray Liotta as Henry Hill, Lorraine Bracco as Karen getting their own private entrance. They go through the back of the club, the perfect table set up for them in front to watch Bobby Vinton perform. Everybody knows it. Scorsese may be directing the story, but Henry Hill, you remember, of course, from Goodfellas, is telling the story. Mm -hmm. The now average nobody, the schnook at the end who's stuck in the suburbs, who's ordering spaghetti and marinara and getting egg noodles and ketchup. So the way we experience that Copa shot is not only how that character remembers it, it's how he remembers experiencing it. It's the feeling. It's about the feeling it evoked for him in that moment, now transferred to us as viewers. So my argument then, or at least the start of an argument that would require a lot more research and consideration, and actually I don't think it's actually running contrary to what you're saying at all about this film, is that maybe this isn't really even a new Scorsese. It's not a different look as much as maybe you're suggesting. The look that we feel like we're getting because we're seeing that this is a movie that's just as much full of sorrow as well as sin, to borrow from a conversation that happens with a priest at the end of this movie, or to use your phrase, as much guilt as it has glory, even though I'll allow that it would be understandable that Martin Scorsese, at almost 77 years old, made a movie that feels in so many ways like a career culmination, that it would feel a little bit more melancholy and wistful. I get all that. Again, I'll allow for that. But I also feel like this is mostly Marty being Marty. He's adopting the style of his storyteller, an older man, a dying man, a regretful, if not remorseful man. I think there is a distinction this movie makes. I don't really think this man, Frank Sheeran, the one we get on screen, is capable of that much introspection yeah, and, and we emotion. we talk about that. Right? We do. And he's a man who seemingly, for me, Josh, didn't really probably enjoy a single moment of his life. His Mm. role was always to facilitate other men's ambitions and pleasures and excesses, and he never really exerted his own free will. He was always doing their bidding, and there's liberation in that, if not actual freedom or joy in being of service, if you will, to other people and not having to make those decisions for yourself and having to just always do what you have to do. That's his explanation Whether he verbalizes it or you just see it in his face, you know that's what Frank is thinking throughout this entire film. I did what I had to do. And to me, there's almost a a Sisyphean quality to Frank, kind of eternally pushing the boulder up the hill, only it never comes back down. It just is him constantly pushing that boulder up the mountain. And The Irishman, albeit with its occasional Scorsese flourishes, it feels appropriately plaintive. Yeah, and I don't think we want this to come off as that it's a more mundane film in terms of its technique because it's absolutely not. Mm-hmm. I'll, we'll, I'll talk about another tracking shot that is evidence of that. And also, I don't mean to su- suggest that this is some major turn in perspective for him. Right. I think every element that is in The Irishman you can find in every one of those other mob movies yep. for sure. It's just a matter of of emphasis at this point, which may be because of his age and maybe because of his character's age, as you suggested, for whatever reason. It, it's not a complete turn in perspective. It's an emphasis of perspective 
perspective for me. And the technique, the flourishes, as you said, are absolutely here, but to different effect. Even in that hit you talked about, which is not glamorized with music or in any way, it does include a rather complicated tracking shot along the restaurant as the action proceeds out the front door, Mm -hmm. um, but to completely different effect, to a deadening effect. I would also say what stood out to me about that scene is the fact that the victim is with his family, including Mm -hmm. including children. Yes. That's a through line in this movie is the the costs to the families of these hits that – I think were probably elements before, but not to this degree. Certainly not in Goodfellas, yeah, as I think I about it. I don't think so. But another a, a tracking shot that – so you mentioned the Goodfellas one, which is his most famous, the Copacabana scene. We get the gray-haired version of that that bookends this movie. I won't give it away, but mm-hmm. it's, it's a tracking shot in the nursing home. And the only other detail I'll say is, of course, we get the crystals, then he kissed me in – Goodfellas, we're not too far away from that here. We get the five satins in the still of the night, but it's a minor key, minor key. version yeah. of what Then He Kissed Me is. And it's so perfect because it's still giving us the, the Motown feel, but but just in a completely different yeah. way and used for a, a just as enthralling tracking shot that feels also completely different than what we get in the Copacabana shot. So I just love that choice to open and close the film. Let's get into a little more about Frank Sheeran and and De Niro's performance. I mean, really, you could also describe this movie. Another way to contextualize this movie is as a trio of towering performances, Mm -hmm. at least in my book. I think Pesci, De Niro, and Pacino are all fantastic in very different ways. And I had the same reading on you. Like, in some ways here, um, Sheeran is depicted as... He's a guy whose moral compass you can never quite read. You know, you don't even know if he has one. Yeah. He has, De Niro has these eyes that are kind of, it's a cloudy gray blue. I don't know how they did that. And it's a little disconcerting. It absolutely is. The first time I noticed it was when they used CGI to, you know, make De Niro look younger. Me too. Those, and that, it works. I think it works ultimately. But the eyes, I was wondering. But as you see that they, they're that way throughout the film, it's almost this... Um, it's a murkiness that the character also has. And Frank Sheeran is very much – De Niro takes this approach in the performance. It's the banality of evil approach here, right? This guy is quiet. He's matter of fact. You talked about how he described the guns he was choosing for that hit. He describes his favorite chili dogs the same way. And he has no more emotion, no. more or less, depending on what he's talking about. And I think, you know, it's interesting in one moment where he does get talkative, it's when he's sort of being recruited. I forget if it's by uh, the Kaitel character or the Pesci character, but he talks about being in World War II. Yes. And how that turned him into a killer, really, because right. of the things he was ordered to do. But given how eager he is to use that experience as a calling card in a way, you almost also wonder if it's an excuse for this guy. It's a very chilling performance that also allows us to – there's just enough distance here so we we do feel for him as well. For that, those things you're talking about, is this guy happy? Has mm-hmm. any of this that he's done given him what he thought he would get when he started doing it? Yeah, exactly. And you're right. We could really go into that last point you brought up a lot more. It's fascinating to watch that scene, that flashback to the – younger Frank in the army and what he does. And actually, (laughs) this is the part I also don't want to dive into too much, but there's a line there that Frank says that I think in a lot of ways is really the theme of the movie. It's the entire theme of the movie when he describes his surprise at his interaction with Mm. people Mm -hmm. who are 
inevitably going to die. Yeah. Like everybody in this film, as Scorsese constantly reminds us. But theirs is more imminent. And yet they still put in the work. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really kind of the, the theme of the movie right there. But you're right. Is he eager to share it? Does he see it as an excuse? Again, I don't think this Frank has enough introspection for even that. Yeah. I think for Scorsese, it's more not a way to excuse it, but to kind of get at this whole idea of how much violence and those types of acts are built into, if not the entire masculine psyche, a certain generation of men who had to suffer through those types of situations and commit those acts as part of war and then come back and exist in society as if it never happened yeah. to them. And I think he just hints at that here. This movie is, for me, it's it's Goodfellas by way of Wild Strawberries, right? In terms of Scorsese's more introspective than Frank Sheeran is ultimately. And yeah, maybe yeah. that's the road the trip. The road the, trip yeah. element maybe even makes me think of that a little bit. And there's a little bit even throw in just a little sprinkle of Forrest Gump in the way it's kind of surprising to see how much Frank is this bystander to history, yeah. right? He's And he's always watching the TV. He's always reading the newspaper. We don't really see his reaction to much of what's happening. There's no action taken by him through a lot of these scenes, but he is always observing. And these major historical activities are always swirling right around him. Sometimes he's actually a part of them. And then he just goes on with his life. I did want to bring up Another common charge against Scorsese here, because I think this is a movie that gives us a lot to consider. Viewers who aren't fans of Scorsese's approach historically to female characters or the lack of them in his films, I don't feel like they're probably going to be challenged much by The Irishman, even if you love the movie as much as I do. And even if you can justify Frank's wife being as secondary as she is, so secondary to Frank's life that she's almost invisible in this movie for all the reasons we've talked about. I don't know how you felt, Josh, but there's very little for her to actually do. It honestly could have been any actress probably in that role. And there's a lot of women in the movie, none of whom are particularly memorable or feel crucial to the story. And then where it gets really, really tricky is with his daughter, Peggy. Hmm. Played as a grown-up by Anna Paquin, probably meant to be in her 20s, maybe even her early 30s, and then as a younger girl by an actress named Lucy Galena. In terms of actual lines and screen time, again, not a lot. But in terms of her presence and the weight of her presence, she reigns over everyone in this movie, whether Frank is coming back from a job or is going to a job or he's playing the role of husband and father at the dinner table. No matter what lie he's telling or how silent he is, she always knows the truth. And I think you can say that he has her love. If she didn't feel strongly for him, then she'd simply ignore him and shun him, not study him as intensely as we see her do, as intensely as Scorsese's camera shows her studying him. But he is utterly incapable of earning her approval. And I think more than Frank's conscience and more than just kind of the eyes of the viewer reminding us of Frank's sin— She's the closest thing to God this movie has to offer, all-knowing, always watching, always judging. Here's where we're probably going to differ on this. I think in that degree, it's an important character, and Mm -hmm. it serves that purpose really well as this conscience of the film. But 
it was the one thing lacking for me in The Irishman um, were the women characters. And I'm not saying this in a vacuum like I went in with a list and was going to say no. this didn't have a strong female character. I, the reason I say it is because of Goodfellas is because the reason I still rank Goodfellas above The Irishman after seeing it once is Karen Hill. I mean Lorraine Bracco got her own voiceover, her own story and – killed that performance, yeah. like just was right up there with Pesci, with Leota. And it showed that Scorsese knows how to do this and gives actresses the opportunity to do it. I feel like um, Peggy looms as large over this film. But here's the difference. Peggy, it's all in service of Frank's character. And it's in good service. I agree with you. Like it, that conscience is crucial. And those scenes, the one in, at the breakfast table after he's committed another hit mm-hmm. and he's reading the newspaper report about it, as you've said. Right. You don't see anything on no, his face. He betrays nothing. But you see she her knows face. everything. She just looks at him. So I do like how they used her, but I don't think that it's necessarily effective in terms of or as rich of bringing in the experience of the women in this world mm-hmm. that Goodfellas did. Joe Hoffa, yeah. and you mentioned the actress, Welker White. Right. She gets a couple of good scenes as Hoffa's yeah. wife and, and shows an independent experience alongside what else is going on here and gets – her scene, this isn't much to do with her performance, but gets maybe my favorite showy technique in the film. This is after a number of threats have been made on Hoffa's family. And she goes to her car, starts to turn the key. That's and, the other Goodfellas moment, an yeah. homage, if you will. It's like when Karen Hill gets in the car and yes. you wonder if she's Jimmy's about to yes. put out a hit on her. And this might be her last moment sitting in the car going down that road. Alleyway. And it's an homage to Goodfellas, and it's also an homage within The Irishman. Because what I love about it is just when she turns the key, Scorsese and, we have to say, longtime editor Thelma Schoonmaker here, give us a little insert shot Mm -hmm. to a previous moment in The Irishman when a car blew up. Right. And it's a trick played on us. Like, for, for a quick second, until you can put together it's not the same car, you think that happened. Then we're back into Joe Hoffa's car starting up. And I just, a little sliver of virtuosity like that goes a long way because it also connects with what you've already talked about, Adam, being the soul of this movie, which I agree with you, those freeze frame shots do too, is reminding everyone that no matter who you are, no matter how much power you attain, you're going to die. You're going to die by a bullet or you're going to die by cancer in prison. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what's all this desperate running about and killing and power. Yes. What is it all about if you're all going to end up in the same place? And, and that little moment with Joe Hoff in the car is just a reminder of death hanging over everyone in this film. So the other two performances I mentioned as this trio uh, are Pesci's and uh, Pacino's. And I just want to say how shocking it was to see Pesci as Buffalino in this story is quite a few years, maybe 10, maybe 15 years older than Frank. And so long gone is this motor mouth. Yeah. Madman yeah, from the Goodfellas man, the instigator. from Casino, you right. know, but the cold bloodedness is still there. He just uses this, it's communicated in this quiet rasp mm-hmm. and he speaks more slowly and he moves more slowly, but he still carries that lethal stick. I, I think it's, it's a very chilling performance For sure. in a way that knowing Pesci's other films with Scorsese, I did not expect at all. Agreed. Now, Pacino. He goes a different direction. Of course, as, as you would expect. And he is playing Jimmy Hoffa, who is a larger-than-life figure. That is it. Yeah. I mean, if if 
you want Pacino now. You want him in this sort of role, a post-Hua Pacino. You need to give him a part like this where it makes sense to go that big. But I also think, you know, he's funny when he needs to be funny this way. He's erratic, but he's also commanding. Mm -hmm. You get a sense of why this guy held as much sway as he did and had as much influence. And it's because partly Pacino is being Pacino. Yeah, and Pacino does what he can, I think, to make him as much of a tragic figure as he can possibly be. Yeah, I agree. Well, we agree on The Irishman. Thankfully, we're not going to have to broker a sit-down and have someone (laughs) sort this out for us, Josh. I'm glad. (laughs) Which did happen with a fairly recent Martin Scorsese film here on the show. That's true, yeah. So we have have gotten past that. We're we're more mature and ruminative in our old age. Same thing happened with Tarantino. It's true. We're just getting to be a couple of agreeable old men here. Yeah, it's funny. Your taste is coming around. (laughs) Nice try. (laughs) The Irishman, I want to say, is... Out now, available everywhere. That's not the case. It's playing in Chicago starting this weekend. But no, if you're in Indiana, you can't see it. It's playing on one screen in Oregon. So everybody can fight it out trying to get into those screenings. And it will hit Netflix at the end of the month. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. More Scorsese talk ahead with the film spotting poll. And then one of the most acclaimed films of 2019 closes out our contemporary Chinese cinema marathon. Our review of Ash is Purest White is next. Stay with us. Living was mistakes not made And the thought of the smell of the black powder smoke And the stand in the street at the turn of a joke Ah, the smell of the black powder smoke And the stand in the street at the turn of a joke And it's always keep you back to the sun you can almost feel the weight of the gun And it's faster than snakes or the blink of an eye And it's a time for all slow men to die And his eyes get squinting and his fingers twitch As he empties his gun at the son of a bitch And he's hit by the smell of the black powder smoke And the stand in the street at the turn of a joke Hit by the smell of the black powder smoke And the stand in the street at the turn of a joke This episode of Film Spotting is brought to you by Film Spotting listeners, including Andrew W. He's from Parts Unknown, and Rawson from Tiffin, Iowa. Josh, that is just a few miles outside Iowa City. I may have spent a few nights at a bar called Slim's in Tiffin, Iowa, <laughs> some time ago. Doesn't exist anymore. Oh, what? Slim's doesn't. Tiff- Slim's doesn't. Tiffin is still, Tiffin's still there. Okay, good, because I'm going to go home to my map of Iowa that I keep every yeah. time you reference a town, and I'll put a push pin. Where Adam was. I love it. It's in my home office. There is no pizza ranch there, though. Oh, well, I will never I think, go. I, I will think never Tiffin, go then. Tiffin's one of the few <laughs> Iowa towns that's too small for a pizza ranch. This one, finally, a $5 a month donation comes to us from Mitchell Bupre, and we're going to share his nice note, Josh. 
I started listening to Film Spotting at the beginning of this year when I started a new job as a Domino's delivery driver and was looking for some film-related podcasts to listen to during all of my time on the road. As someone who's been obsessed with films since I was about 14, I'm 29 now, so it's been a while, I'm delighted to get to spend so much time listening to the chemistry that you two share, creating the feeling that I'm genuinely listening to two good friends just hashing out their thoughts on a movie after seeing it, with no small contribution from the guidance of Sam and Golden Joe, no doubt. I live in Newark, Delaware, which, as you can imagine, doesn't always get all of the movies I'm eager to see, especially not in a punctual manner. And I find myself once or twice a week driving an hour or so to the nearest theater playing some of the smaller releases. All of this is to say that I spend at least 50 hours a week in my car alone, and being able to listen to your weekly episodes and go back through archives from the Battle of the Wolf of Wall Street to the Great War of Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri... (laughs) Is that what they're calling it? ...has made that time a lot less lonely. I just finished listening to your episode reviewing The Big Short and Chirac while driving an hour to the closest theater to me that's playing Jojo Rabbit. Good for you. And thought now was an appropriate time to finally pay the dealer. And say thanks for all the hard work you put in to making my favorite podcast happen. Well, thank you, Mitchell, so much for the kind words there. I know, Josh, you've been preparing for your list of the top films of the decade, getting that short list ready. Mm-hmm. I did some maintenance on mine <laughs> okay. over the weekend or, you know, started getting it ready anyway, considering what could make the cut. You know, it's going to look pretty good on that list. You're putting Wolf on there, aren't you? I, I mean, that and a little gem called Three Billboards Outside no, Ebbing, Missouri. Adam, Adam, as a friend, you don't want, <laughs> well, to, I didn't you say, don't want to do that. I didn't say how many films were going to be on the list, Okay, but it's in the conversation. Yeah, yeah. It's not going to make the top uh, 10. You, I, I'd say even take it. It's not going to make the top 20. Just, just take it out of the conversation. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a line to you from an opera. I want you to give me that line back in the language in which the opera was originally written. And for a bonus 250, uh, you can sing it. I'm Stanley Spector. Philip Baker Hall there in the trailer for Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. It is the next film in our 9 from 99 series. Just like it sounds, nine films from the great movie year 1999. Seven great discussions so far. 14 combined positive reviews, or it should be. Until we hit American Beauty last time, I was just barely positive on it. You were a little more negative, Josh. So. Yeah, I had I couldn't betray 1999 me. I had to stick with my guns. I get it. Magnolia is the penultimate film in the series. Of course, we only have one more to go, and this one could end with a bang. Star Wars Episode One. Oh, can't wait. The Phantom Menace. Oh, always up for an excuse to rewatch The Phantom Menace. Midichlorians and all, Adam. Yeah, I am looking forward to what I hope will really be a good debate about the film. I haven't seen it since it came out, thought it was terrible, but have not even really thought about the movie since then. So it's been 20 years, and even I'm, with I'm bringing Awakens, fresh eyes. Last no. Jedi, you didn't want to revisit it and well, see what you missed, why, well, how you could have been so wrong. First, you were just no, following the crowd. No, didn't want to revisit it. But also, there's a difference between want to and having the time to, and... I decided I didn't have the time for The Phantom Menace. Now, or now you have clones. both. Now I have forced the myself. and the time. I have forced myself to make the time. So Magnolia next week on the show. Phantom Menace coming next month as we prepare for the 
latest Star Wars installment, Episode 9. We do have some movie passes here we would like to give away to our local Chicago area listeners. The Thursday, November 7th screening of The Good Liar, starring Ian McKellen and Helen Mirren. You can sign up to win those passes and see the movie for free in advance of its release by going to filmspotting.net slash events. So for whatever reason, I've seen this trailer maybe five or six times. Okay. It's kind of got me excited about this movie. Really? Yeah, I think it looks great. I've to seen see it twice. Those two just have, they seem to be having a blast. Yeah, and here's that other case where I hate watching trailers because you think I you know always feel like, well, and even if I don't, even if there are surprises, I don't want to have those expectations. Mm. I don't want to have any of those expectations at all. And that is a trailer where when you watch it for the first time, it sells the movie as being really all about Ian McKellen as the con mm-hmm. man mm-hmm. and Helen Mirren being the one being conned. The and then victim. you see the second trailer yeah. and it wants to suggest that, well, maybe the lines mm-hmm. between victim and con man are, are more blurred. And now who knows? I I feel like I just know too much about the film I before I, I go gonna, in. For a movie like this, I don't think it's going to matter. No, you're actually. Right. You're just so, going to kind of enjoy those performances. Yeah, unfortunately, coming out at a very busy time of year, I don't know if I'll be able to prioritize it, but I, I get the instinct it'll be a lot of fun. Okay. Top 10 of the year, Josh Larson, The Good Liar. <laughs> we'll Coming see. in December. If I get to it. New this week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, we wanted to fill you in on what they've got planned as well. Of course, Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky are the hosts there. They are pairing Bong Joon-ho's new one, Parasite, with his 2005 film, The Host. Adam, The Host, would you say, let's do some Bong Joon-ho ranking real quick. Parasite above The Host? Parasite. I know, I know you love the host. Parasite's my number one bong. All right. Yeah, there you go. Clearly. And I am a big fan of the host, but Parasite, definitely number one. I'm going to agree with you, but say the host might be number two for okay. me. So a good pairing here on the next picture show. It posts every Tuesday at midnight. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, find more info at nextpictureshow.net. Massacre Theater is the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. In case you missed it, we're going to play you a little bit of last week's massacre, we got this note from Adam Fromm in Brunswick, Maine, who wrote in asking, regarding the newest Massacre Theater, and with deepest admiration and respect, what the screaming blue Saxon F was that? <laughs> now, I googled that phrase just to see if that was some uh-huh. yeah. some idiom that yeah. I wasn't aware of, and I think Adam made it up. Well, you know what's funny? I it's think, impressive. I think you used it in your performance. <laughs> That's right. Just no one could tell. <laughs> Let's hear it. You know the problem with being the last of anything? By and by, there'll be nothing left at all. Sometimes things come back, man. We're living proof, you know, man. So, so far in the feedback, I've heard Benicio Del Toro and The Usual Suspects. Okay. I've heard Anthony Hopkins in Legends of the Fall after he has the stroke. <laughs> And I've even heard, to go back to Scorsese, and we're going to hear a little bit more Scorsese talk in a minute, I've heard maybe I was trying to do my best Daniel Day-Lewis in Gangs of New York. but All all of those. He enunciates so much more clearly. Precision and clarity compared to what you were doing. If you know what film we did massacre, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is this coming Monday the 18th. And here it is. I'm going to give you the hint I didn't give last week. Okay. Haven't gotten many entries. It's like they hmm. couldn't understand what I was saying. I wonder or why. Something. The hint I was going to give last week that will pretty much give it away now is it is part of a franchise. Hmm. I don't even care which movie you name. Oh, 
Could be number four, See, I th- could be one, could be 17. Doesn't matter. Just name the franchise. We'll put your name in the hat. But that was part of the challenge. Okay. All right. We'll maybe see what maybe we'll do. only pick the winners from the ones who get it right. Mm-hmm. 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 Come on. Mm-hmm. Come on, Josh. Join me. Mm-hmm. You got to mm. pound harder than that. I don't know if that's picking up. <laughs> Matthew hey, McConaughey. At least you picked one of the few good scenes ah, in The Wolf okay. of Wall Street. You'll, so you'll give us that. I do like that scene. McConaughey there in Scorsese's The Wolf of Wall Street. And it is time for a poll results. A couple weeks back, we asked you to name your favorite Martin Scorsese movie, and you overwhelmingly chose, no surprise, Goodfellas. So we decided to rephrase the question and ask, what is your favorite Scorsese movie since Goodfellas? There are still a lot of great options. There's 12 of them. In fact, not counting The Irishman. In chronological order, those choices are Cape Fear, The Age of Innocence, Casino, Kundun, Bringing Out the Dead, The Gangs of New York, The Aviator, The Departed, Shutter Island, Hugo, The Wolf of Wall Street, and Silence. Josh, how did it come out? Well, Kundun... Only 1%. And then it looks like we have a tie here with 2% of the vote is Cape Fear and the Age of Innocence. This one, this makes me sad. More people need to see Bringing Out the Dead, I'm afraid, because it only received 3% of the vote. Hugo got 4%. Gangs of New York, 5%. The Aviator, 6%. Shutter Island, 7%. Look at all these all lined up so closely. Casino, 8%. Here's where things start to shift a little bit. Silence, recency bias here, maybe. Silence received 12%. Of the vote, The Wolf of Wall Street, 18%, but winning is The Departed, 27% of the vote. Connor in Princeton, New Jersey writes in, Scorsese was my gateway director into film nerdery, and lately I've been rewatching his work, much of which I haven't seen as an adult. The Age of Innocence is the one that sticks out to me now as an underseen masterpiece. It's a gauzy and incisive look at high society, passionate but restrained, with flashy camera work that really serves the characters. Here's a vote for silence from Nick Doolittle in Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic. Had to vote silence. It's a masterpiece. Saw the film on a plane two years ago and it rocked me hard. Scorsese's approach to issues of faith, doubt, cultural tension and sacrifice and the profound honesty of a man wrestling with his beliefs in the face of extreme hardship slash persecution had me shook at 30,000 feet. Plus, the cinematography is stunning, even on a seatback screen, and the understated score is perfect. Few films have affected me like silence, and I suspect few ever will. Yeah, so if Nick can have that experience watching on a seatback screen, then... Think about what you can do with the Irishman on your 60-inch TV or whatever you have at home. I think Nick's going to get a lot of crap for that. Probably. Eric Howder says, remember the first rule of politics? The ballots don't make the results. The counters make the results. The counters keep counting. I had to watch that scene today to remind me of a Jim Broadbent in the Gangs of New York. Eric says, come on, Gangs of New York fans, 5%, unacceptable. Civilization is crumbling. I'm telling you, Eric is onto something. Having just rewatched it, I had forgotten how much... That movie sort of predicted the political era we're in right now with the like the insane nativism as a motivation Mm -hmm. and the election shenanigans. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Here's another note from Stephen Hill. Since it asked for favorite, I had to go with Hugo. Creative use of 3D, check. Love letter to the dawn of cinema and specifically the work of George Melies, check. Completely outside of what we expect from Scorsese. Check and double check. I love it when directors take left turns that actually work. Great stuff. Here's John in Summerfield, Florida. My vote easily goes to 
the eventual winner, The Departed, maybe the most purely entertaining of Scorsese's gangster films. I'll stump for it any day and insist that those Best Picture and Best Director Oscars are no mere career achievement awards. Mitka Alperowitz also weighed in. I came here to vote for Kundun and decry The Departed. And I've already voted for Kundun. I will cede the rest of my time to Brett Merriman. (laughs) The honorable gentleman from Southern California rises to say, I'm not expecting the right answer to win. Silence. But good Lord, people. The Departed isn't even the best cop is a criminal, criminal is a cop movie. Be bold, bringing out the dead. Be revisionist, Casino. Be clueless, Hugo. Be Scott Tobias, Wolf of Wall Street. Just don't be that person, that departed person, the one who's glad Marty finally got that Oscar. Just don't. So I don't know. Am I supposed to take from that that Brett believes The Departed is a bad film? It sounds like, I don't know this for certain, somehow in all the time we've spent together, I've never gotten his full take or got his summary judgment on The Departed. My guess is he thinks it's fine. Okay. He thinks it's a little boring. Well, I hope he at least thinks it's fine or he and I are no longer new best friends. So (laughs) Departed's great. Okay. Well- I agree. So are you going with The Departed? Are you going to go with the right answer, according to Brett? Silence. Are you going to go bold, your beloved bringing out the dead, or revisionist, or clueless? You're definitely not going the Scott Tobias route, The Wolf of Wall Street. No. What's your vote here? Um, I am going bringing out the dead. And it is it is just that strong of a film. It absolutely is. As, as a, I don't want to say retort, but as a, a refraction of Taxi Driver in fascinating ways. I just love it. I love the Nick Cage performance. That's where I would go, even though The Departed would would be close behind. Huh. Yeah, I think things are going to be a little tense the next time I'm out in L.A. and see Brett because I'm 100% that guy. I'm that guy who doesn't care about Marty winning an Oscar or not, but I do vote The Departed in this poll question. It's a fantastic film. And also it goes back to the original question where we did both pick Goodfellas as the movie that we thought was Scorsese's best film. Part of the reason I said that was considering not only the craft, but how much I enjoy watching it. And the fact is, on a short list of five or ten movies that if they come on TV, I'm stuck watching them no matter where they are in the film, Goodfellas and The Departed are on that list. Okay. So The Departed is getting my vote. I get the entertainment charge. It is probably the most entertaining of the gangster films in a lot of ways, but I don't hold that against it. Uh, Let's let's rank the the gangster, the Scorsese mob movies quickly here, Adam. Okay, so I'll give you some time. (laughs) Well, can I say first that I'm in the process of rethinking my letterboxed ranking of Scorsese's films. Oh, okay. Because I realized I hadn't even added so this might a few be of his recent. So what's there. Right. Well, I haven't, I haven't made it public again yet because I'm still in the process. I was just right. revisiting my list. And as I think about it now and I look over that list of films, and especially if you throw in The Irishman. Yeah, that's, I, I want to do that. <laughs> it's very hard so for me. you've got six movies. You've got six movies and I've got three recent ones that aren't Goodfellas that are all really close together. The Wolf of Wall Street's not one of those mob movies, obviously. Right, I'm just talking about You're the You're just talking about the mob films, movies, yeah. but I'm going back to that larger Scorsese question. Now, if you didn't I need another reason, his, so yeah, I was just going to say that. I can't do it. I if, just... if you already had reason to throw out my opinion anyway, I'll give you more. Of those 12 movies we mentioned, I haven't seen four of them. Yeah. I have four blind spots there. Yeah, so, I, think, I think I've got three or four yeah, myself. Yeah, I do, I do regret those blind spots, but it's very hard for me to choose between The Wolf of Wall Street the Departed, and The Irishman. I think those films for me are all pretty close together. So you want to rank the gangster yeah, films. Yeah, yeah. So give me the list. All right. So I'm going to go I'm going to go with um, Goodfellas still at the top. I've got I've got The Irishman 
after that. Okay. Um, then I think even though it's his first, um, I think Mean Streets is mm-hmm. just doing so many interesting things and is so bold that I've got that third. Departed, though, close behind that. Okay. Um, so really like The Departed. I think there's a drop-off after this point. Um, so then I would go Gangs of New York and then last. No, I'm sorry. I would switch that. I would go Casino and then Gangs of New York. All of these films I do like. Yeah, I like them all too. I am going to get some hate mail for this, but I will agree with you that the bottom two are Casino and Gangs of New York, and I would put Casino at the bottom. Then Gangs of New York. And again, here's where it gets really murky. This is why I haven't hit publish on that letterbox list, because I don't even know how to rank The Irishman against The Departed and also Mean Streets. Yeah, it's tough. They're all great. You just got to say something. That's how you do it. <laughs> I think I think I'm going to go with the correction to recency bias, whatever that word might be, and say, I'm not willing to put the Irishman just yet ahead of Mean Streets or The Departed. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. I think that's where I'm at right now. Yeah, that's that's fair. We'll see after when it does hit Netflix, we can take another look at it. We'll see where it lands. Yeah, I can't wait for that. Looking ahead a couple of weeks, we have a new poll question for you. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood is one of the movies we're planning to get to before the end of the month. Tom Hanks starring as Mr. Fred Rogers. In that one, it, of course, is not the first time Hanks has played a real person, not by a long shot. We're asking you, which Tom Hanks performance as a real-life figure is his best, Josh? We have Jim Lovell, Lovell, Jim Lovell Lovell in Ron Howard's Apollo 13, Texas Congressman Charlie Wilson in Mike Nichols' Charlie Wilson's War, Walt Disney in Saving Mr. Banks, Captain Richard Phillips in Paul Greengrass's Captain Phillips, James B. Donovan in Spielberg's Bridge of Spies. Adam, if you don't vote for this, I will be sorely disappointed. Your beloved Chelsea Sully Sullenberger from Clint Eastwood Sully. And then one more here, Ben Bradley in Spielberg's The Post. So some good stuff here. And before you send in the comments or the emails, we acknowledge that he has also appeared in many films that are more loosely based on real life people or inspired by or whatever terminology you want to use. Those movies could include Philadelphia, Catch Me If You Can, and The Terminal. And of course, who can forget that Hooch is based on a dog named Hooch, but Turner is a complete fabrication. (laughs) No, no. So we're ruling that out. (laughs) But some tough choices here. And looking at them, when you think about actors playing real life figures, part of the kind of puzzle of considering those performances is how they mesh or don't mesh with your expectation, what Mm -hmm. you know of that real life figure and their persona. And you look at this list and the most famous real life person Hanks portrayed has to be Walt Disney. And yet I can't imagine how many people, at least who were born in the past 30 years or so, who have an image of Walt Disney in their minds, right? He was public facing during his time, but yeah, not so much. So honestly, in terms of the public consciousness, Sully would be the character most people do immediately conjure up an image of. Building your Sully case already. (laughs) Now, I do think a lot of Ben Bradley from The Post, but that's because for me, Ben Bradley will always be Jason Robards as Ben Bradley in All the President's Men. So all of that is a roundabout way of saying, despite how much I love his performance as Sully, and I like that film, as you know, quite a bit, I think the best performance on here is Captain Phillips. Yes, yes. The best performance is Captain Phillips. It is. It is by far the best performance. And it really has nothing to do with the, as as you're saying, the impersonation factor. I have no idea. Um, yeah, we, we, we have no idea in this case, but that final 
scene. I think it's the final scene of him on the boat yeah. after spoiler. You know, they they retrieve him. I mean, and that it doesn't matter who he's playing at that point, right? It could be a real life person. Sure, all the context that leads up to that scene is important, but it is one of possibly the best moments in Hank's career. For sure. And, and I think, you know, everything he does in that film is is pretty strong. So I just saw this now in early voting. It turns out that listeners, maybe surprisingly, but maybe not, since we both voted this way, they're going with the correct answer. Captain Phillips is Very nice. in the lead over Apollo 13's Jim Lovell. We would love to get your vote and hear your reasoning. If you do leave a comment, let us know where you're listening from. You can vote at filmspotting.net. It's time to close out our contemporary Chinese cinema marathon with Ash is Purest White. You heard a little from the trailer there. It is one of the best-reviewed films of the year. We're happy to finally get to it. And the short provided plot synopsis is basically when a gangster's girlfriend fires a gun to protect him, she ends up doing five years prison time. After being released, she goes in search of him. Pretty simple. And in a lot of ways, a simple movie. And in a lot of ways, a very, very complex movie. And we'll try to provide some of the background and context on that. And when I say will, I mean, our marathon curator, the expert on this decade of Chinese cinema, Sean Gilman, is going to enlighten us, Josh. Here's Sean. Jia is the preeminent filmmaker of the sixth generation of Chinese directors. The fifth generation was the group that followed the Cultural Revolution, directors like Zhang Yimou and Chen Kaiga, who came to prominence in the 80s and early 90s. The sixth generation came around in the 90s and 2000s, post-Tenemen, who were known for working independently outside the state censorship system, and thus their films were technically banned on the mainland, though they distributed widely in bootleg form. Where the fifth generation were known for lavishly costumed historical epics, Farewell My Concubine, Raise the Red Lantern, etc., the sixth made gritty films, shot on cheap film and early digital video, realist movies set in the present or the recent past, often in the minimalist style of Taiwanese directors like Ho Shen and Edward Yang. And we get a little bit of that digital video here in this film. We get a little bit of that grittiness. We also get some lavishness in Ash's Purest White. I think something like five or six different cameras and film stocks were used in this film. Sean continues. He says, Zhao's earliest films are in this mode, grungy movies about contemporary misfits in Zhao Wu and Unknown Pleasures and the minimalist epic platform about a music and dance troupe as it transitions from the end of the Cultural Revolution through the 1980s. After the world and still life, ambitious fiction features that brought Jia significant international success, he spent several years away from fiction films making a series of documentaries. He returned to fiction in 2013 with A Touch of Sin, which melded true life stories of violence in modern China with tropes from wuxia film and literature. His 2015 Mountains Made Apart is in three parts, set in three different time periods in which the fate of three people parallels the transformations of China over the same time period. And there's definitely that element at play as well in this movie. And you're going to hear our friend, the professor, Nathaniel Myers, in his setup thoughts on Ashes Purest White echo something that I know we both felt, which is this marathon in a lot of ways was not only an excuse 
to watch this film, but an excuse to watch the films of Ja Janka because he is a significant cinematic blind spot for us. Let's go ahead and hear Nathaniel. So Adam, Josh, I didn't know a lot going into this contemporary Chinese cinema marathon, but I did know one thing. I was very excited to finally get a chance to see a Gia Zhanka film, and especially Ash's Purest White, which has gotten a lot of buzz over the past year. And for me, the film didn't disappoint, mostly. Where I found the film to be most affecting was in the story of Chow, a woman on the fringes of society who, over the course of the movie, is on what you might describe less as a voyage of self-preservation and more a voyage of self-actualization. She's a character whose very center of gravity is continually in flux, from the very singular situations that she finds herself in, like the sudden assault against her partner Bin and the five years jail time she faces after she comes to his defense, to those more existential challenges she faces, such as her re-entry into a society reshaped by changing technologies, modes of transportation, and literal landscapes. The film was most compelling for me then in those moments when she manages to impressively navigate the world in spite of the circumstances, whether it be by powerfully wielding an illegal firearm or running the same con twice until it proves profitable. The power of these moments is helped in no small part by Zhao Tao's performance, who is just absolutely incredible in her subtle but dynamic range, as well as through Zhanka's direction, most notably in his elliptical editing style and his use of different film formats to evoke what I would describe as the existential malaise of time passing, of the world having changed. If the film falters at all, it is for me in the way that Chow's story is undercut a bit when Bin returns, when the film seems to become less a story about her than a story about them. Yes, he is one of the primary catalysts for her ever-shifting center of gravity, but even as I appreciated the complex ways the film depicts their relationship upon his return, I nevertheless felt, in the final third, that her character and some of the film's ideas had been a bit short-changed. But, as always, Josh, Adam, I'm most interested to hear what you guys picked up on that I'm very likely overlooking. Are there elements of the film you found thematically significant or emotionally compelling that maybe aren't as evident by focusing narrowly on Chow's story, rather than, say, that of Chow and Bin, or Bin alone, or even perhaps the story of China more broadly? Thanks, guys. Emotionally resonant, yes, but in a very specific way, in the way you might describe, I would say, the films of Michelangelo Antonioni being emotionally resonant, which is odd because they're very much about being emotionally lost. Yeah, disconnected, disconnected alienated. Disconnected, totally. Um, and films like La Ventura came to mind frequently while I was watching. They didn't for me until you said it, and now I feel dumb because absolutely. Well, it's the tone, but As also we watch a lot the main of the characters in these landscapes. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I think it was that central section, the second one, I yes. believe, uh, along the Three Gorges area, along the Yangtze River, where it came to mind. And I've responded to the Antonioni films that I've seen in a similar way because it does capture that sensation so well. And I think Ash is Purest White does this similarly. The widescreen composition, you know, it, it, you mentioned the different formats being used here. I think that's where the, the widescreen composition really does kick in when we see these massive, massive landscapes. And it's an area 
tellingly also facing huge change, right? There are comments being made about mm-hmm. how this one region that the main character, Chow, is taking a boat through is going to be flooded um, and these towns are, are going to just essentially disappear. So in the background, you have this idea of a changing China, um, but really it resonates with um, the central relationship between Chow, played by Tao Zhao and Bean, played by Fan Lu, the gangster, um, even when she reunites with him and they don't really connect, yeah. this is evoked by placing them against cityscapes, these yep. vast cityscapes or these staircases, walls, housing complexes that just seem to go on and on. And there's that one shot of the two of them even in an empty stadium. I'm not sure if it was like a soccer stadium or mm-hmm. what it was, but they're the only two there and it's desolate. And, and that use of imagery just to evoke how these two people who are so connected – we saw them in the first section of the film, how tightly connected they were, um, have drawn apart but still have something pulling them together but not in the way that either of them really wants. So I found this, um, yeah, very affecting yeah. in its in the way it captures alienation. Yeah. That makes sense. No, I think it makes perfect sense and really not connected to any of the deeper meanings of this film at all, but – Sometimes I'm struck by what I call coincidence spotting, which is when two movies are being discussed on the same show that it's totally random that they're put together and on their face should have nothing in common whatsoever. And then you find the connections. And I happened to catch David Ehrlich's letterbox blurb for this movie, for Ashes Pure as White, and he said, a long and melancholy summation of better movies, he likes it but doesn't love it, mm-hmm. of better movies the brilliant Zsa Zhanka has made before, Ashes Pure as White finds China's most prominent filmmaker wistfully replaying the hits in order to further romanticize some of the fixations that have always dominated his work. So just replace Zsa Zhanka, Ashes Pure as White in China with Martin Scorsese, mm-hmm. The Irishman, and United States, and... It basically works as well for The Irishman. And not only that, two films that some people have said, I know I've heard those comments here and there or picked them up on social media, the greatest hits of Scorsese. We talked about it a little bit as well. This one's even essentially a mob movie, too. If you really think about it, it's a gangster movie. And we always think about Scorsese and his love of rock music and the way that is expressed in his films and the songs on the soundtrack he calls on. And my understanding of Ja is that it's not by accident or random that we get a lot of scenes here where the music is really key and Mm -hmm. pop music that kind of catchy romantic music we get and even kitschy. Some of it is Chinese music, but then there's also a sequence that relies heavily on YMCA, right? Yeah, for sure. Now I did want to reference one other thing that Sean pointed out. I use the word culmination to talk about the Irishman too, with regard to Scorsese. He says that this is a culmination of Jia's previous work. It borrows that three-part structure of mountains made apart and the connection to Wuxia of touch of sin. Its middle section, he says, is largely a recreation of still life. It's the same location, same costume for the lead character, but different plot. Its character names even come from unknown pleasures, though they don't appear to actually be the same people. He says that this movie actually begins with leftover footage from unknown pleasures, the grainy stuff on the bus before they cut to the drone shot over the city. And the concert footage in the middle intercuts a contemporary Zhao Tao in the audience singing along to a performance captured during the still life shoot more than a decade ago. So... Homages to his own work abound, obviously, in this film. We should say about Zhao, she is in, I think, all of his films, but two, actually married to Zha Zhanka. So a recurring muse for the filmmaker here in this movie. But I point all that out, not because it's just good information and kind of fascinating to hear, but one of the 
real pleasures for me of the marathon, I think for us always, has been coming to them as relative neophytes, not trying to know everything there is to know about these films and all the background and kind of taking them as if they're a movie we just walked into the theater and saw. But when you get additional context like that from Sean, you really do realize the richness of the experience he's having with the film, sure, like yeah. Ashes Pierce White and like a lot of viewers are having, that we're not. And maybe next time we'll have a little bit more of that foundation. I do want to point out that I don't have a phrase as provocative as Nathaniel's The Existential Malaise of Time Passing. But we've watched four films now in this marathon, all of them obviously from the past 10 years, and all of them have wrestled in different ways with China's tumultuous past and their present. Two of them were period pieces. They were looking backwards to engage in a political dialogue, one that was very current, one that was topical. And it just seems so perfect that we close with a movie that finally moves forward in time. It starts in 2001 Mm -hmm. and goes to 2006 and ends up in 2018. But even as it moves forward, it's about characters in a place that are inextricably linked to their past. They really can't escape their past and their past connections for better or for worse. And a main character who actually, I think you could argue, gets closer to her past the more time that passes. In other words, as she goes forward, as we see her leave her home, not so much by choice, she is in prison, and travels for different reasons. When we see her come back at the end, she's back where she started. Yeah, there's a return. Right, there's a return. She's embraced. She really has tried to go home again and has seemed to make the best of it. But you're so right, Josh, about the landscapes here and the way Janka juxtaposes them, where we're either seeing these kind of smaller towns that are clearly in decay, or we get these more bustling urban centers that seem almost futuristic with their skyscrapers and their towers and and all the construction. Or we're getting pure landscapes that look unspoiled and completely unscarred by history and by so-called progress. And you mentioned that Three Gorges Dam sequence, which struck me as a place that's stuck in a sort of purgatory Mm -hmm. between the past and the present, where as we hear a tour guide, I think, say, in a few years, all of these homes that are up on that ridge, it's all going to be underwater. This is where the water is going to rise to. So in my understanding, I could be wrong, but that is man-made. That's not that's not because of nature. They're choosing sure, to do yeah. that. That's, again, part of this so-called progress. But for now, if you're living in that, you're just living in sort of a limbo, right? Mm-hmm. Caught between these two states. And I think there's really nice poetry, obviously, in unless I miss this, Josh, or am making a connection that doesn't exist, in them returning to a spot, the couple, the central couple returns to a spot 17 years later. It's a moment of connection that will define, we see is going to define her future, the future that is at the end of the film that we don't know and have to fill in the blanks, just as their futures back then, back in 2001, were defined by a moment of connection there. Yeah, and we should say, too, we're describing this as it is, um, as an ex- existential, thoughtful uh, piece of work. But it starts with a bang. I mean, this this first section, when Bean and Chow are still uh, together and he's sort of the leader of this uh, this group. He's not at the top of this mob, this connected right. criminal outfit. He's a but player. He's, he's yeah, a, he's, he's definitely a smaller a time boss. He's got a crew underneath him. Um, and the the movie is is pretty exciting for that section. Um, and Tao Zhao in the in the part she is, 
I love how she's fearless right at the beginning. I think the first time we see her, um, well, first of all, in this whole section, she's wearing bright colors and flashy shoes the whole time. Look, dresses very differently than in the latter half. Yes. Um, but when she walks into this room where they're all playing cards um, and it's kind of where Bean's men hang out, she hits them. In the back, kind of like aggressively, Mm -hmm. just playfully, but also aggressively. She takes his cigarette. Um, We know he's the guy in charge, and she kind of grabs that to let a gesture of, yeah, but I'm kind of his right-hand woman. Um, And so I like the performance, and I like how there's the sequence in the dance club, the YMCA one, um, which is very electric. And wow, that – moment that does define their futures, um, the act she commits, which sends her to jail. Um, it's a single take. They're basically in a car together and some guys come after him, right? Essentially mm-hmm. his driver, I think, gets out first yes. to protect him. And this this gang takes down his driver. And so he wraps his hand up, punches through the window someone. I mean, it's like a an action that's, film at this that's point. That's the only real action moment in it this is, film, but and it's it great. Is, it is something else. Because it is. then as a single take, he comes out, and there's a full-blown, almost like a wuxia fight scene. Yes. Um, they eventually, after a while – it's here, I'll, let me put it this way. It's the only fight scene I think I've ever seen where I believed – the one guy was actually taking out the seven. You know how yeah. most they always take yeah. the turn. It's like let even though there's no, seven, right. let's watch you. The way this is choreographed, you believe that Bean is taking each of these guys out. Eventually, it begins to be too much, and she picks up the gun and goes out there. And I think that's all in a single take, and it's just it's it's really excitingly filmed but also very distinguishable from what we get in that latter half. Well, and what about what we get in that middle half? Another one that my recollection of it, I didn't get a chance to go back and rewatch it, is another long take, but completely devoid of action. Mm. It couldn't be any less filled with action. It's these two main characters in a hotel room talking. But it plays out in an extended shot and the blocking of it is really graceful right where you see characters kind of just moving in and out of the frame and the camera doesn't make any kind of jumpy or unnecessary movements it's very economical but we watch this emotional drama as they reunite play out over the course of what feels like a five to ten minute scene it plays out in real time in a way that without hitting any overly dramatic, certainly not any melodramatic notes, mm-hmm. it's really affecting. Yeah, definitely. That's a standout sequence as well. So I have a I have a last question for you, although maybe my guess is we're going to have to punt this to Sean Gilman and see if – now, if he can answer this one, I'll be really impressed. What's with the UFO? Do you have a theory? <sighs> I don't have a theory. There is this sequence. It's during that middle sequence where she meets a guy on a train and he claims to be – Part of some business that does tours for parts that have been visited by aliens yeah, or UFO sightings. Yeah, something like, like that. And she's she, a con man as, he, as yeah. she's been trying to con people as well. Right. And she's pretty successful at yeah. it too, as we see. Probably unlike him, though, he, he seems to work it pretty well in that scene. I'm not sure she ever completely buys it. No, the I don't way think so. Probably the other passengers do. But she confesses to having had an alien encounter yeah. at one point. Is that the part that flummoxes well, you or just well, in general? No, because I felt as you did that she was probably playing him. Yeah. Saw through the con, was like, how can I? Um, so it's a great exchange it on the is. train. But then after she decides, he invites her to come work with him and, and she thinks about it for reasons we're not entirely clear, but maybe to see what she can get out of it and then does eventually leave on her own and gets off at a stop 
where that's pretty deserted. Yeah. And she's passing by an abandoned building um, and there's this like light show and even sees, a, a you know, something darting through the clouds at right. night, which I took to be, you know, a UFO. And I I just wondering where that fits in. Yeah, I, I am sure that Sean, in fact, I'm pretty sure in our comments, he says something about he it. He references maybe, it. Yeah. yeah, maybe more in passing. Yet another little mystery, I think, uh, Zhao wants us to consider at the end of the film. All also for people who are really into this movie or into this conversation about the connections to not only other Zha films, but other Chinese films. There's a bunch of stuff Sean has in here about songs that are used and references to the killer and, and very blatant choices that are meant to ironically inform us about the characters that, again, were completely lost yeah. on us. We should put, can we put that like on the Facebook page yeah. maybe or something? Yeah, I think yeah. we can definitely post it. Why don't you plan on, if you're curious, come on over to our Marathons page, filmspotting.net slash marathons, and we will post those full comments there. That's also where you can find all of the reviews that have made up this contemporary Chinese cinema marathon and all of our past marathons. We do remind you that all of the titles that have made up this Chinese cinema marathon are available on demand. And if you can't get them that way, you may be able to find them at your local library. Again, filmspotting.net slash marathons. And we'll officially close out the marathon next week. We're going to save our awards for then. We do need a name. We don't have one yet. So if you've got a good idea, if you've been following along and have something clever to throw out, please do let us know. Feedback at filmspotting.net. And I've been thinking too, Josh, on-air production meeting, oftentimes, or typically, with our marathons, we make room for a category that is unique to mm-hmm. the marathon. Something that we maybe wouldn't have even been able to anticipate when the marathon started, but then after you saw the films, you said, oh, we have to have best example of yeah, X, right? Yeah. And I'm not sure that's what it gonna, is for these. We've seen this. four films that all are, as we touched on, connected in in some major ways and also very, very different. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what that common theme is other than was thinking about something that could relate to politics, the most blatant connection to the current state of politics in China mm-hmm. or some kind of historical reference, anything. It could be yep. either yeah, something, something political or... I don't know. We'll take suggestions for that, too. Yeah. For those who have been watching all these along with us, see if you have a category we should consider. Yeah, and if you have a favorite performance from the marathon or your best picture, send us an MP3 file or other audio file, or you can email us. That email address, again, is feedback at filmspotting.net. And, Josh, that is our show. It is. If you want more film spotting, you can go to filmspotting.net and find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. To order Film Spotting t-shirts or other Film Spotting merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. To subscribe to our weekly newsletter, you can do that at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. If you want to connect with us on Facebook or on Twitter, Adam is at Film Spotting, and I'm at Larson on Film. Out in wide release this weekend, a new movie from China, Better Days, about a bullied high school student and a small-time criminal who become suspects in the murder of a teenage girl. Dr. Sleep is out. This is director Mike Flanagan's adaptation of Stephen King's Shining sequel. It stars Ewan McGregor. Last Christmas stars Amelia Clark and Henry Golding. It's directed by Paul Feig. Playing with Fire, Josh, is about a crew of rugged firefighters who meet their match. We've also seen this trailer way too many times. No, when no. attempting to rescue three rambunctious kids, it stars John Cena, Keegan-Michael Key, and John Leguizamo, or Midway, 
Roland, Independence Day Emmerich, tells the story of World War II's Battle of the Midway. I'm putting the gun to <laughs> your head, Midway, or playing with fire. Midway, because really? Midway will probably just put me to sleep. Playing with fire, the, the trailer itself makes me angry. I like all of those performers, and I understand there was no gun to their head. They agreed to do this. But John Cena, so funny in Trainwreck, so yeah. awful in the trailer. Yeah. Keegan-Michael Key, yeah, great. I love. Right. John Leguizamo, come on. I know. I mean, I, I, he should be able to say no at this point. Okay. No, I'm okay. not going to playing with fire. I'm going to playing with fire. No, you're not. Yeah, I am. and I'm. Well, I'm not, but... If a gun was to my head. Why? And here's why. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tip the hand on the scale, Josh, and I'm going to make you change your vote. Who's, run, in, who's in midway? Runtime. Well, I, it, it'd be Runtime playing with fire. 96 minutes. Playing with fire. 96 minutes. Two. Midway. Midway. What's your guess? Uh, 168. <laughs> I mean, now that would just be... That would be a criminal offense. <laughs> it's not 168. What is it? It's, it's a mere 140. Oh, well, okay. 96 <laughs> minutes of playing with fire is going to yes. feel like 483 minutes. I guarantee you. The Battle of Midway itself didn't last 140 <laughs> minutes. We spent way too much time on these two movies. <laughs> Out in limited release, including opening here in Chicago, the latest from doc filmmaker Lauren Greenfield, who did The Queen of Versailles and Generation Wealth. It's called The Kingmaker, about Imelda Marcos, the former first lady of the Philippines. By the Grace of God opens, played the Chicago Film Festival. Now is here in Chicago, Francois Ozan's latest. It's playing at the Music Box. And yes, if you're here in Chicago and you can get a ticket, you can see Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. We encourage you to rush out and see that if you do not want to wait for Netflix. Next week on the show, it's our 9 from 99 review of Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. And I think we've each got a recommendation to bring to the table. I don't know that you're going to have time or make time to watch The King on Netflix, but you know Mr. Henry IV, Henry V fanatic, did watch that. And of course, Mr. Taika Waititi fanatic Josh Larson made it out to Jojo Rabbit. I did. It's it's really good. Okay. And and I, I want to believe you. I, I'm just going to say, I also feel you could go for it. You could love it. But it might make for a really fun film spotting split. You could really go the other way. Oh, man. And not care for See, it. See, now you've got I'm me. Not pre- I'm not predicting. Now you've got me intrigued. It's a possibility. All right. Film spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is by Steve Earle. It comes from his new album of Guy Clark covers. It's called Guy. More information is at steveearle.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.